Welcome to the one within all to another episode of the Interverse podcast. I'm your host, Chance. It's often been said that to know where you're going, you have to know where you've been. And today we will be stretching our imagination portals back to the furthest reaches of our discernible past with our guest, Bernie Taylor, a naturalist and archaeoastronomer whose research into the cultural clues that prehistoric man might of prehistoric man might just help us conceive of possible answers to some of the biggest questions that we can ask. As I have often pondered in past episodes, what kind of people would have had the powers required to look at the scripture of stars above and recognize their own stories and that of nature's harmony in them? What type of consciousness would be required to map the heavens and see the structure of the cosmic psyche playing out above their heads? In his book, Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero, Bernie Taylor has reverently analyzed the riddles contained within cave paintings of the Paleolithic Age and managed to see more than what the eye can spy, looking through the lens of the mind to lift up the multidimensional perspectives carved in stone and reveal a record of written language's possible foundations, the biological knowledge encoded in this art style, and the roots of religious practices that are still extant today throughout the world. So buckle up and prepare to widen your sense of wonder as we explore Bernie's findings to connect with the cosmic man blueprint that flickers within the breast of every living human being. As Bernie says in his book, before Orion will change the idea of who you think you are. So be sure to check out beforeorion.com where you can find a copy of the book as well as many research presentations that Bernie has done over the years. And now it's time to peer through the lenses of archaeology, anthropology, astronomy, psychology, and mythology to rediscover some of mankind's greatest secrets. Welcome to the show, the master of Paleolithic pattern recognition and herald of the heavenly hero's journey, Bernie Taylor to the show. Welcome to the universe, dude. And thanks for being here. Vance, thanks for having me on. And that was probably the best introduction I've ever heard for any guest at any time. And so thank you very much. I appreciate but you're you're right on the head is what how far back in time who are, can we identify who we are? And if, if we can go so far back in time to find an identity, is that the same person that we still are today? So we there's no beginning, there's no end, there's just who we are. 
I love it, man. I consider time to be more cyclical than linear myself, but maybe we can <laughs> introduce you as uh, the, your current self <laughs> to the show. You know, tell us a little bit about your journey into this work and what fascinates you the most about it, why you've made it your life's mission. Absolutely. So everybody has a start somewhere. And, you know, I could start at, you know, three years old when my sister hit me in the head with something or, you know, college and I got too drunk. But the maybe a place to start with this presentation or this program is I was studying upper paleolithic cave art and I was interested in the timing of animals. So I was a natural, I was a naturalist, totally interested in just animals and how they know what, how do the salmon know when to spawn in synchrony? How do we say the geese are earlier or later? And, but they're, they're on their own time. They don't follow one smart goose. And so I was working on that concept and I went back and I looked at, could this ha have been depicted in upper hill cave art? And so going back to about 40,000 years. And the answer was that it is because hunter gatherers in today's, let's say, North America and Siberia have the same traditions in their calendars and for animals as we would have had 40,000 years ago. And when I was doing that, I stumbled upon an image that was recently dated to about 40,000 years ago. It's called the gallery of discs. And on this gallery of discs, there was a, um, there was a, an elephant that hadn't been identified before. And I was pretty sure, you know, it was, it was obviously an elephant. And right next to the elephant, pretty soon saw a a, um, a lion, and it was a lion with a mane, so it was an African lion, not a, a European lion. And so we got an elephant with it also had a flathead, which is an African elephant, not the elephants that were in Europe at the time. So we have this cave in Spain that has images from Africa. And I went out to a friend, uh, somebody I'd met in my, my mid-20s when I lived in China, and I'm 58 now, it's a long, long time ago, and he helped me work through the animals. And we Back and forth for about a year and a half, we identified on a few different panels, probably 40, 50 animals that had not been identified before. And we, and we could see how their, the, the spatial arrangement between these panels, the, the animals on these panels were all the same. So it's like they, they had a blueprint. They had a, they had a chart. But, but most importantly, I, I was moving away from the animals and who the, the timing of the animals. And I saw on one of these panels obviously an older man, we'll call him a teacher, speaking to the ear of an apprentice. And that was like, that's the first chapter of the book I show the teacher, the apprentice. And um, it just blew my mind because you can read, there's a story going on. There's a narrative that the teacher is explaining something to the apprentice. We call the teacher shaman, call him a spiritual leader. We call him a lot of different things, but he's telling a story. So what is, what would people tell in a story tens of thousands of years ago? about all these animals on this panel. And that led me to Joseph Campbell, as most people would stumble upon pretty quickly, and, and Carl Jung. So then the, the question became, why do we tell stories? What are these stories made up? And these stories, of course, we, we call mythology. And what, where do they come from? Could we today be telling the same stories and myth, myths as we told 40,000 years ago? What a few you know changes for our clothing and our, places and you know whether we you know walked across the landscape or we drove a car could we be telling the same stories well young young carl young he studied dreams and he found that there are common elements in dreams and there come some of the common elements were mountains so people all around the world dream the, the mountains and rivers of transformation or rivers of, of faith but they also dream of bears and they dream of elephants even places where people don't have elephants or, or bears, but they're common elements or characters in, in their dreams. And we found on this panel, we could sign a, find a body of water. We could find 
we can find mountains and we can find elephants and bears. And so it led me down this path far beyond the animals and far beyond the, the biological clocks and what I was originally interested in to where do the dreams come from? And do the dreams have us, as a young analyst would say? So do we do we dream? Do we, um, or does the dream tell us, navigate us through life? And you've probably had a few guests on your program that went down that path. You know, do we live out dreams, or do, do we really make them up, or those dreams make up our how we? The dreams make up our lives. Do we live in a matrix of sorts with limited options? So those are the questions I started to ask. And here I am today. <laughs> Still questioning. I love it, man. Yeah. So as you saw before you came into the room, I just had a previous guest where we talked about the superstructure of the human psyche and his discoveries with hypnotherapy and all that. And one of the big epiphanies I had in re-listening to that episode after it was released you know, okay, so talking about mythology, one of the mythology, like one of the aspects of the monomyth is, as you as you call it in your book, the cosmic man, the first man, the first teacher, the larger than life <laughs> hero, or maybe even possibly the man whose body this universe is, you know, if that's a, if that's yes. possible on a fractal sense. And mm -hmm. the, uh, the sort of epiphany I had here re-listening to that conversation as he described his perspective on the darkness and the light coming out of the darkness and the first sort of meeting of the light and the darkness and the rules of the game that they decided to play with each other was mm -hmm. I had this epiphany about the idea of a savior or a psychopomp, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. And so my thinking is, you know, before I, I looked at this as a, pretty much purely allegorical thing. And now I'm wondering if there was a first mind that emerged mm. in the cosmos, you know, yes. out of the pleroma sort of all things and their opposites where there isn't such a thing as reflective self-aware consciousness. Well, wouldn't that first mind, I, I was like, well, if I was the first mind, I would want to, I would want to lead the minds that came after me or help them teach them so that they would understand how to not get stuck and how to stay in flow, how to keep moving. Cause mm -hmm. as with water, when you get stuck is when you get stagnant and where things get, you know, start to smell, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about this cosmic man idea as sort of a, a, a teacher or so of sorts that lives in the universal psyche and can communicate with us through dreams and maybe even seeds these types of stories into human consciousness so that at the point of transition, there's a recognizable form to that being as it attempts to guide them onto their next phase so that they're not scared of that being, be he taking the form of Jesus or Odin or Hermes or what have you. Interesting question. So Abraham, the biblical Abraham, effectively asked that same question. And from that question, he came up with the concept of monotheism. What Abraham said is that the animals in our world um, respond to the sun, the moon, and the stars. Okay, They technically don't respond to the stars, but they definitely they, they technically don't respond to the stars. But we put animals, project them as constellations in the night sky that travel through the seasons. 
So that's that's easy. So what I was started working on way back when, of course, was this biological concept of the of the animals responding to light dark cues of both the sun and the moon. Um, and that tells them where to be in time and place. Well, Abraham saw that same concept, and he said that the the sun and the moon, the stars, um, are acting on the be- behalf or the benefit of mankind. Therefore, there is an eternal force that is keeping us on track, as you as you say. Okay, um, in your words. So we. So is there a universal force? Well, that is monotheism. I mean, that that is now you you you're not never going to hear that in church. It's it's in Josephus. Which is the book of the Jewish Jews? Jo- Josephus was a Jewish author, and he wrote a book about the. Um, he was a Jewish historian, so he had like no bias. I mean, every story has biases, but he doesn't have a theological bias, right? He's basically repeating the story, the narrative of how Abraham came to find uh, monotheism, which is the sun, the moon, the stars, acting on, on behalf of us for our benefit, and therefore there's a one God because they're all in synchrony in one way or another. Okay, so there's cycles that we can actually tabulate so for so from the perspective of is there a divine force um yeah you actually for this in the way that abraham thought of it for this life on terra firma absolutely no question about it um abraham was uh he was on it but he wasn't his concept of finding these patterns in the animals in his world was known by hunter gatherers around the world at this time and long before his time they just didn't see it as one god. They saw it as you know the the, the moon is one god is a god. The sun's another. That star's a god. That one's oh, that planet is a god. Therefore, many gods are kind of manipulating the forces. Abraham said, no, no, no. It's it's a lot simpler than that. So 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 one half of what you just proposed, I'm with you. Okay, so that there is a track, there is a path. The other half, the other half of the question was, do we have a common consciousness? Does the consciousness come from from you know, an Akashic record of sorts. Okay. Well, when I came up the, the, when I brought forth the word cosmic man, I wasn't thinking in that sense, but I was really borrowing from ancient traditions, such as the Chinese have the cosmic man who, who comes from the sky and he, 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 he falls on the land and, you know, the, from his blood comes the rivers and his fingers come the trees, all that sort of stuff. And so there's a common around the world, there's some sort of cosmic man mythology that people have that explains where they came from. So there's that doesn't say there's a a common consciousness, but there's a common way of trying to reason who we are and where we came from and how the terrain came to be. Okay, so that's that. So then it goes back. And so then we go further back in time um, before these ancient myths, before the cosmic man and ask the question of where do myths come from? Who who had the first myth? Who had the first story? And how did we go from chimpanzees um, who they don't really communicate with language as we do, but they have sign language. Chimpanzees in the wild have sign language. They could technically communicate a myth if they wanted to. If they had a myth to tell, they could tell the myth. Okay, so that's that's possible. And in, in captivity, chimpanzees have learned over a thousand American Sign Language um, ASL. So there's no there's nothing holding back a chimp from signing a myth, even if they don't have the vocalization to do it. Okay. So how far back? How did it happen? Here's my hypothesis. And I've done a lot of presentations on this. I think that the difference between us and a chimp and a ho- us and Neanderthals and Homo, Hybo, and Homo naledi and the rest of them is that we, we see pareidolia. We see pareidolia. When you look into the night sky and you see Ursa Major, the, the constellation, you see a bear. But I'm going to tell you, this is, this is something, you know, 
we'll keep it between us. There is no bear in the night sky. <laughs> there is no Orion in the night sky as a man. They don't exist. They're paradoia. We find patterns in the night sky and we we name them. We project our psyche into them to, as a mother bear. And we tell a whole story about mother bear with Ursa Major. And we have, story, we have myths about Orion, as different myths around the world of Orion as a man. So we project that. We find paradoia. And we also find paradoia in mountains. So you can go around the world and people say that face of that mountain is an actual face. But that is, of course, paradoia. And people climb the mountain to meet the face of that mount, the, the face of that deity in, in the mountain, that animistic spirit. And so I think that before there were myths, there was paradoia. And when we saw the paradoia, we united around the paradoia, whether it be constellations or mountains um, or other rocks. And that became a foundation of religion itself, faith beyond ourselves. And from that paradoia, we started to tell myths, how that came to be. So I think that we, we, deep in Africa, a long, long time ago, we found paradoia. And we found these, these fundamental myths of how we connect to the night sky and to the terrestrial plane around us. And then from there, we, we spread around the world over tens of thousands of years, not 12,000 years ago, not on mystery ships and all that sort of stuff in Atlantis, but tens of thousands of years ago, we spread around the world to find, to, to refine these myths based in the paradigm of the new places, whether they be new night skies for us as we travel north to south, east to west, or in paradigm and mountains and landscapes in the places that we travel to. And so it was like, it's, you know, we, we spread it out there. So, so did we have a common consciousness? Did we find, was there a first person who saw the paradoia? I would say yes. Absolutely there was yes. And that person spread their seeds to other, to other people who had, who had the, the recognition of paradoia. Because not everybody does. People who have strokes, some people have strokes, they lose their ability to, have, to see paradoia. So they can't, they have a hard time recognizing faces. They don't see constellations in the night sky. They don't see faces in the mountains or, you know, in, in the bushes or things like that. There's also, there's a spectrum of how much paradoia people see. I give a lot of presentations to astronomy, professional astronomers. So these people are high in the physics side, high in the math. And someone always comes up to me and says, you know, I don't see constellations. Uh, I mean, he's got to look at his computer, he can see it, but he can't see the, 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 the pattern of the constellations in the night sky. So there's a spectrum of people who, who through, um, you know, illness, strokes, people who are low on the paradoia scale. And then as on the other side of the scale, we see Picasso. And Picasso found paradoia in many places, and he integrated those paradoia images to his, into his modern art. So modern art itself is founded on, based on Picasso and founded in paradoia. He took paradoia images outside from, out, from caves, and he lifted them, and he dropped them into his paintings. That's what par that's what he did. So paradoia is this phenomenal ability that not everybody has. We can go back in time. So Homo sapiens, we have we have we have art. We have cave art. We go back um, to 40,000 40, or so years. We have no cave art for or no art for Neanderthals. So is it because Neanderthal couldn't see paradoia, or they could see the paradoia but they had no reason to replicate it? Don't know. But the fact of the matter is they didn't replicate the paradoia. What the replication of the paradoia becomes the actual art, becomes the, the physical memory, the physical object that be carried on from one generation to the next. So did Neanderthals have the Neanderthals have stories to tell as we do? 
I don't know. Because we don't have a record of that. But we do have among homo sapiens going back at least 40,000 years ago is we have a record that we can see a mountain. We can see the exact same mountain carved out in a cave. And that mountain may kind of look like a bear, the paradox of a bear. And we can see that they they not just took that mount, kind of look like a mountain in the cave, but they they filled out the rest of the bear. And we can see the same for elephants and other animals. So they found paradoia, not just a mountain, the face of a mountain, but they found an animal in the mountain. And they brought, they, they refound that in the, in, the, in the cracks of caves. They filled it out and made that connection between the terrestrial realm and the underworld. They connected the two. So that is our, so if there's an as above, so below, there's someone in the middle, and the middle is the terrestrial plane. We've now covered the terrestrial plane and the blow. And that is forming a basis of spirituality, a spirituality, a religion that is unique to us. You know, chimps don't do that. There's no record of Neanderthals doing it or any any other um, hominids. It's unique to us. So we've covered two realms and there's a third. But you have a question now, Chance, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you can feel it burning in my eyes. <laughs> so first of all, it's interesting that you bring up uh, Abraham. I was just doing some light reading of the 1796 translation of uh, the ordinances of Menu from Sir William Jones back in India long ago. And basically, this is a law book among the Hindu Brahmin caste. You know, you brought up Abraham. He's a Brahmin. Which direction did that mythology flow, east to west or west to east? I'm mm-hmm. not entirely sure about that. does look like, honestly, the uh, ordinances of Menu with, with a cosmogony in it, almost identical to Genesis, but more sophisticated, mm-hmm. leads me to think, actually, that the Hindu system may be younger than the Israelite Hebrew system. But I have lots of problems with mainstream chronology, especially when it comes to... <laughs> <laughs> this particular type of stuff because mosaic history is also what holds up the facade of most of the institutions of power in the world, at least going back a few hundred years when the monarchs all had a supposed direct descendancy from a flood hero. Not as relevant now, but those power structures are in place because of the past where that type of divine right of kingship was believed in. So anyway, you know, back to this idea of the cosmic man a little bit. Menu is the first man created by Brahma, and he gives the laws to the uh, the Brahmin caste that that caste. And so, to me, it makes kind of a lot of sense that the, whoever the first mind was, it, you know, allegorically or literally, would also be a lawgiver of sorts because he's figured out how to obey the rules and flow of nature in order to stay healthy and aligned. So when we're talking about very fascinating subject of pareidolia in seeing things that aren't necessarily there, but mm-hmm. they come out at you, it's a very specific skill set. You know, it may even be enhanced by or or initiated by entheogenic practices. You know, that's something that for sure will happen if you eat a psychedelic mushroom. You'll start seeing faces come out of the tree, <laughs> trees and leaves. Yes, you can. Yes. Yeah. And so Absolutely. it's something we've got. But it's, you know, when you, in a shamanic sense, defocalize your gaze and allow the, you know, what was solid and straight lines become a little fuzzier around the edges, this type of ability is something you can practice without the need of any substances. So 
with all that laid yes, out. Yes, yes. Oh, wait, wait, pin that right there. Pin it right there. This that's what you just said is so important because many people believe that art came from from shrooms. Um, but because people do see all kinds of different things and fine lines um, on a canvas w- when they take shrooms, but it doesn't take shrooms to do it. That is the most important thing. And the difficulty with shrooms is uh, the, the difficulty, I should say difficulty with shrooms, is that as shrooms relates to art is everybody will see something slightly different because you, on shrooms, you're, you're, your mind is trying to find a path. They're trying to connect the dots, the lines. Whereas if it's paradoia that we all see, we can all make out the stars in Orion and, this, and the, the structure of Ursa Major. Whereas if you're in shrooms, you're looking at either one of those, you're going to find a few more things out there. Or you get, your mind is going to interpret a few more things out there that aren't actually there. So, yes, that is a key point that it, it didn't require shrooms to do this. Um, in fact, if everybody's taking shrooms, they can have different visions of the paradoia and they won't have a common image or perception or one common belief system. So that's really thank you. Could, now you I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. I like that distinction. And the question that I was formulating with all that is in your experience looking at this cave art, would you, you know, do you have any kind of idea of how that art translating to a mythology of sorts is something that allows the establishment and carrying forward of essentially laws, but in this case, maybe more tribal customs and practices yes. that are for the good of those societies. How, how does this cave art help us comprehend the law, if you will, for these ancient people? Absolutely. So the, the, the laws that when you're talking about um, ancient Hindu people, those are really struck. There's a lot of structure there, right? There's a lot of structure. When we go into animist peoples, they do have social norms, they do have beliefs, and they do have laws per se, laws of how to get along with each other. Now, in the cave art, going back 34,000, 35,000 years, what we see is a lot of animals, okay? And we see animals, or mostly female animals, with a juvenile, and the, the, the mother the, the mother animal, the draft, is, is protecting her juvenile. And as the, the main character, they, we'll call him the hero, excuse me, goes on his journey, he meets with all these female animals and he intersects with with the the juveniles. And he becomes one with the juvenile such that the mother animal is protecting the hero. So as the hero goes on his journey, he learns from his protected by all these animals. It could be a dolphin, it could be an eagle, it could be a giraffe, could be a mother bear. Uh, and, he, and, and, a, and an elephant. So he's protected by all these animals that he learns from. So he's, he's the hero, you know, in, in ancient times, a bunch of Greeks, you think of going out there and learning how to, you know, his, his mentors, you know, how to swing a sword, right? Or how to, you know, uh, swing a bow. These, those what we think of in the ancient world. And, but in the, the upper Paleolithic images, we see the female character um, teaching, nurturing, the boy after he's left after he's left the um, the womb of sorts right after he's left the mother um, going go on his journey so it is not the male characters the, the, and the, he only meets one character on this journey and it's a lion and he fights with the lion he slays the lion he puts the the, the pelt of lion around his neck which becomes the the Hercules myth part of the Hercules myth so it's the Nimian lion that Nimian, and that lion becomes the constellation Leo which is our third realm we'll have to return to. Okay. So the social norms were different then in that, uh, yes, the hero goes on his journey. He leaves the family. He leaves the mother behind. 
but he's nurtured and taught by other females along the way that are all animals that teach him about the ways of the what we would call the, the, the wilds, but that is in fact his his space. So yes, um, so we're very different way that we think of today. Uh, a very different way. We when was the last time um, we we went out to you know to sat on the lawn or sat in the forest and look at the squirrel to see how the the squirrel you know operates. What is the, what is the what is the strategy of a squirrel and what can we learn from it? But these uphill cave images would depict the hero on his journey journey who's doing exactly that. He's learning from all these animals. Now there's something in um, in Greek mythology we find. All these different constellations, like Orion, we found Hercules, and Perseus. But in the Upper Paleolithic myth, they're all one character, and they depict the hero at different stages of his journey. And so, at the halfway through his journey, when he kind of goes that you know come to face the moment or his greatest fears, he's Orion. And then when he returns to the other end, so to the north, he's he's Hercules. So Hercules and north north or south diametrically um, aligned. Most people don't realize that. And so and there. And also to just add to that, whenever you, in the linguistic study of things or the symbolic study of things, examine any of these pantheons or Greek, Roman, Chinese, you name the culture, they're heroes. They resolve down into a mother, father, child. And then that mother, father, child resolves down into one being. So what you're saying, you know, you're maybe describing the, uh, the origin of how this cosmic psychodrama are really all characters in one mind and that one mind playing different roles as different characters to symbolize the attributes of different times of year. Absolutely. It's not just that. Yes, but they're not just one. They are in fact, yes, but they are in the end one character, but you're right. They're reflecting different times of the year in different places and time and space that they are. In fact, that is absolutely correct. What the Greeks did was they took them apart and made them their own, you know, their own narratives, their own stories. That that they um, they tend to have all the same father, Zeus, right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> but they uh, but they're all different. Uh, they're all they create different stories about these things. So Perseus goes to uh, Mount Atlas and with the head of the Gorgon Medusa changes the Atlas to stone. Hercules, cousin comes along later. Uh, yeah. The Greeks so we, uh, kind of confused the system in a lot of ways. Yes. So, they, so what they do is they, they saw the different characters on the, um, from this prehistory and they said, well, they don't understand how they could all be the same. So they made them their own unique characters on their journey. But here's interesting. So we, we're covering this, this concept of the, of the cosmic man and all these female characters that support the, the hero on his journey or his adventure. When, when you, at the end of the, as you travel through all these animals and you, you go, you go on clockwise and come back to, to Hercules and Hercules covers the entire panel, his form. And within his form are all these female characters. So Hercules, the hero at the end of the journey, is not a hero who's learned how to slay lots of animals and all things that you know, the actual Hercules, you know, the, myth, the Greek mythology Hercules did. But rather, he has all the female animals within his form. So from a Jungian sense, he has the anima and the animus. He's the complete man. He's the whole man. The whole cosmic man of both time and space, both the, 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 the time and space of the animals, of the terrestrial plane that they travel over, 
and the third realm that is of course the night sky so in terms of you know back to the idea of customs or laws is this maybe an encoding in terms of you talked about the uh the cave art having like a, a sequence of animals is this in your opinion a type of proto zodiac and that what's being encoded there could be the knowledge of how one develops psychologically into yes, individuation 100%. and maturation, because that is something that uh, would yes. be important to hold on to that knowledge so that your next round of initiates could be properly brought up to, I say brought up to speed, but I mean more like expanded properly so that they have the ability to see from multidimensional perspectives. So Chance, we are now... 30 minutes, 34 minutes of the program and you just wrapped the whole thing up, didn't you? You just pulled the whole thing together in 34 minutes. It, it takes other people, sometimes it never happens, but it takes, mo- it takes four or five episodes that actually did what you just did. So, ap- so you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. So let's jump to the night sky, okay? Because you just nailed So you, you're... You're an hour away. We were supposed to land. <laughs> My bad. This just so you know, this audience. This is the uh, this is the advanced class. <laughs> we have really sharp audience here. We don't have to. Uh, we don't have to baby them here. Absolutely. So let's go to the zodiac. So the zodiac was invented by the Greeks because that's what they saw in the night sky as the travel the the, the path of the sun, the ecliptic. But in the Paleolithic cave art, the, the, the um, well, first of all the the earth tilts like a, like a, it has a it wobble. It's called a procession, 27,000 or so years. And so it's sometimes in this procession, you see some constellations and others, you don't see others based on the tilt. Okay. So we don't have a zodiac per se, because there's a different tilt in a different time, um, 34,000 years ago. But what we do have is we have most of the same constellations as the Greeks ended up with. The Greeks had constellations from three sources. One is they had their own history, right? So they weren't stupid people. Okay. The second is they received them from a, a document called Malapin that came from ancient Mesopotamia. The third yeah, 48. Story, yeah. Well, no, 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 no. So there's not how like, many were in the Malapin. No, no, we'll go, okay, step back 30 seconds, 30 seconds. Let's go back. So the first one is what they had in their order of history. The second is what they received from Moab, and it's maybe like 12 or so constellations. But the bulk of it actually came from ancient Egypt, ancient Egypt. So Ptolemy had the 48, but Ptolemy received his constellations from people before his time, and one of them was Eudoxus. Eudoxus came shortly after Alexander the Great. Eudoxus was a contemporary of Plato. They were in Egypt. At, they lived at the same time. They knew each other. They weren't like buddy, buddy, but they both went to Egypt and they both studied among the priests. And so the, this mass of constellations that we have um, that, that came to the Greek re- record, most of them came from the ancient Egyptians through Eudoxus. And then the, we go uh, College Eudoxus of Alexandria. Around. Yeah, we've we've done a lot of work showing how mythology bottlenecks through that Alexandrian College of Priests and then spreads out to yes. the world. Because what happened is that it bottled, it's sort of bottlenecked, but it actually, that was the, the source, the source was Egypt and it came into the Alexandrian schools. Um, and it came in, the key person was Eudoxus. So Plato and Eudoxus go to Egypt at the same time. Plato comes back with his narrative of more like philosophy. Okay. And civilizations and what we need to do better so that we don't, you know, have earthquake, the gods don't give us earthquakes so we don't fall into the sea. 
Eudoxus was a, a, he was a mathematician. He was an astronomer. He came back with astronomy. He wasn't interested in, in the narratives that Plato had. So they were they were two different people. And so Eudoxus brings us all this this what became our astronomy. Now what he did is they be, you, you had a merging of three constellations, and so there's there's overlap or, or what you see in the night sky. And so Eudoxus so under Ptolemy. Under Ptolemy, he said, well, we're going to make the dol- – so in our pillar of the cave art, the, the dolphin and the whale overlap with each other. The, the whale goes north and the, the dolphin goes south. Okay. And what they already had – and that was Pisces. The ancient, the ancient Egypt – I'm sorry, the, the Greeks already had Pisces' two fish, kind of like the V thing. And so what they did was they made the, the dolphin Delphinus and they made the whale Cetus. Because they, the upper, in the upper Paleolithic mind, they weren't looking. They were they weren't looking as a map per se. They were looking as a map of the night sky. So if you're going from north to south, you're going to be looking at the the uh, the dolphin going in one direction, in that direction. But if you turn around, and come back, you'd be looking at you'd be looking starting looking at the head of the dolphin. That doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And so they made the the north direction a whale that overlap each other, and so the. So there, there were there were two there were, there were usually two constellations or two asterisms in the Paleolithic um, inventory, and the Greeks sorted it out to make them, um, you know, you, you only had one because the Greeks weren't interested north to south, two constellations, one went north, one to south because it was too complicated. Now what the, what Ptolemy also did is he struggled with this because the Greeks already had stars. Let's say the foot of an animal was a specific constellation. Then and then he 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 brought in another constellation that foot over of the animal overlapped with the nose of a new constellation. So as we inherited them into the modern world, we had the foot of a nose over the over the the nose of another animal. And about the 1960s or so, the International IAU, the International Astronomical Union, they recognized this problem. I mean, they recognized it long before then, and they they moved they you know they they moved them apart. <laughs> okay, so this one became in that constellation, and that one became in another constellation. So the constellations that we have today, we, we sort of inherit them from ancient Greeks, but they were revised because in modern astronomy, you have to have you can't have two one star. And two constellations, although that's how Tomley had it, because he inherited from the, the prehistoric world. Well, I want to say too this overlapping where <laughs> one is also a part of another and the part of another that it is is something different. I think that's an interesting element because it reflects the nature of this cave art where uh, two animals will be depicted and will be sharing some lines and depending on the way you look at it, you'll see one thing or another thing. That's an, a secondary layer to all this that is really important. Like for me, as a, someone who's done a lot of visual art in my life, that's kind of the style that t- feels the most natural to just make <laughs> make stuff and then see how that stuff becomes other stuff and have no specific mm-hmm. plan. Uh, but I wanted to point out now to the audience, like, if this type of thing is interesting, get a planisphere. You can get an inexpensive planisphere. You can yeah. see where the constellations are near each other. But then another book that's really good is H.A. Ray, mm-hmm. uh, his book, The Stars, A New Way to See Them. And then you'll be able to get really great insights, like rather than just seeing Hercules as the kneeling warrior wielding the Vajra, there's also a 
more of a spinning, <laughs> almost swastika-like whirlpool or primal chaos element that, you know, the whirlwind, if you will, that that constellation could be depicted as. So not only <laughs> there's more than one way to look at every constellation and having the multidimensional approach is much more helpful than trying to take our current version of the constellations, project it back in time and assume that we can make any sense of what our ancestors thought. Absolutely. That's really cool. And those two great resources. Another one is Stellarium, which is the free astronomy program you can downline, download. And you can go back 100,000 years ago to see what these constellations look like um, relative to the horizon. And so here's another, you, you brought up an interesting concept as an artist that by putting two images together, what do you find from that? Well, the upper pillar of the cave art had this hero going on his journey. And as he traveled around, he, he, the hero overlaps with the animals. Okay. And so there's one character overlaps with the dolphin to become a merman. That's where merman come from, okay? The uh, uh, Perseus overlaps, the head of Perseus overlaps with the head of the juvenile giraffe to become being protected by the mother giraffe. So we find that the concept of the theriantrope, the mix between the man and beast of sorts, right? The human and the animal, comes from the upper Paleolithic um, or hunter-gatherer, truly hunter-gatherer, concept of mixing with the animals to gain their strengths. And we haven't lost in our, in our modern time, think Spider-Man, Batman, Aquaman. They take on the, the psychological and physical strengths of those animals. So we this is something that it, you don't need a big stretch of the imagination to do because we still do it today in our modern, advanced, you know, high-tech. We think of, you know, science as the foundation of who we are but the fact is you can go to the movies today and you can maybe you can't watch spider-man today in the movies but you flip it on netflix um or would be a, no it'd be on the disney channel i think <laughs> okay anyway but you, you you can get streamed spider-man and you can say you can fall for the story you can completely engrossed even though you recognize that a man cannot act like a spider but you can fall within the same uh, the concepts. But this concept is part of who we are. So we, you know, someone as strong as an ox, they're uh, they're as fast as a, a horse. They're as smart as an owl. And if there's owl. a cosmic man, if you will, if there's a true as above, so below blueprint in the sense that the universe is a fractal macrocosm that the human body is a microcosm of, mm -hmm. then in a sense all those elements, at least in a psyche level, do exist within a man. And so Absolutely. Ab come closer. And in Hercules in the Paleolithic in, in the images, he encompasses the whole panel. He encompasses all of the animals that are asterisms or co become constellations. So Hercules is the cos is the original cosmic man, is the paradox in the night sky that, that everything ultimately becomes one with. So yes, but so what I'm saying Hercules or from the that's how we can recognize the individual, but that's not how the ancient Greeks saw Hercules. He's a man that goes on his journey who who learns along the way, but he doesn't actually get protected by animals, female animals as he does it. He he slays, you know, he slays them. Um, yeah, and on one so level an allegory for the sun traveling through the 12 stations of the year. And, and that is exactly what it is. And there's there's been um, questions. So people in the past have asked this question of was Hercules. Um, can we tell tell all the labors of Hercules to the constellations? Definitely. So so the answer is yes, you can. OK, 
But you can do it much better in the upper pelvic myth because they're actually in the correct order that way. They're in the correct order. So you can do it with the, the pelvic myth works a lot better to do that. Um, but they are, but the Greeks, um, the Greeks added elements. And so it's not as, it's not as smooth. And Hercules is not, as I say, Hercules encompasses them all, but the Hercules is the hero at the end of his journey. And on that journey, he, he travels in many of the forms such as Orion and Perseus. So the, so absolutely with this concept. So we're, so we're talking, so we're, we're in the, we've jumped to the above now. Okay. Cause you and I are on the terrestrial plane, we've covered the cave, the below, which is um, a, is, is the night sky. And when you go into these deep caves, they're all, they're all dark. So where these panels are, they're deep in the caves. There's, there's no sunlight. So let's jump into the night sky. And we've talked about Hercules on one end of the panel. We've talked about Orion on the other panel and, and, and Orion. And so right after Hercules, the Hercules, we have this man, the teacher and the apprentice, and uh, they take on the form of the, the, the hero on his journey takes on the form of the eagle. And the eagle is the constellation Aquila, Aquila. Um, and so he takes on the mask, the mask of the, of the bird. And then he, he takes on the, um, he meets with a horse. The horse is Pegasus. Um, then he meets with a, another, one or two other animals. He finds a dolphin, which becomes uh, um um, becomes Pisces. He encounters um, the the whale. He, he encounters the dog that becomes um, Cirrus, Canis Major. Um, and he goes he goes around this panel, and he encounters as he goes around, he encounters um, um, the lion, which became the nymphing lion in, in Greek mythology of Hercules. That becomes the the constellation Leo. Then he meets with another animal too. Then he encounters Ursa Major, the mother bear, who's watching her juvenile cubs climb a tree and then he counters an important one he counters a crocodile and it's an african crocodile because we look at based on the text the the taxonomy and the this Af african animal animal this uh, crocodile figures into the greek mythology as well because hercules climbs a mountain that is mount atlas and, and at the at the mountain he, he counters the the dragon that becomes Ladin, Landon or Ladin, and um, he encounters the the that becomes the constellation Draco. So we have Draco. the The origin of Draco in the Greek mythology is the crocodile that's on the upper pillar of the cave image that is on the top of the mountain, according to the ancient Greeks. So where's so the mountain? I have a question about that. So sure. in this Paleolithic art. Is there any hint that they had some kind of reverence or polar symbolism in terms of that cosmic mountain with the uppermost reach being the pole star of whatever age they were in? In the sense that, you know, Draco circles around the mountain, if the mountain would be that axis mundi represented by the pole star, the immovable point that the rest of the heavens circle around. Well, how they did it. So, so yes and no. So the, there's, we find there's two types of mountains where we find the paradoia, okay? And the power of these animals. One type of mountain has like a whole bunch of them, okay? And if you look in that direction, so if you're looking, you'd be looking, you know, west perhaps for for certain constellation. The animal, you see the animal, you see the constellation. But you'll see a whole bunch of animals. And so there's there's the other type, and those are all the early ones, 34, 36,000 years ago. There's another type where you only find one animal 
in Paradoia. And those are from like 26 to 12,000 years ago. So they lost the original mountains. We had all these constellations and all this Paradoia, but they kept the tradition by go- finding new mountains that had one animal because they couldn't refine the whole thing again because that's not how Paradoia works. And they went around from one property to one ad- one place to another on on their specific journey. So the animal, the mountain atlas that Hercules climbs, that we find these these Upper Paleolithic images we can actually identify because it has it's just full of the whole paradoia and it's a mountain that the ancient greeks called atlas it exists but we don't call it atlas today we call it jebel tobacal jebel tobacal is the tallest mountain or highest mountain in west north africa it's a glacial mountain so people were you know for very long periods of time people going up and down the mountain to live and they live very successfully. The people who live there today are called Berbers, or they call themselves Amazil people. But the people in the ancient world, they didn't call them Amazil people. You want to guess what name they called them? I don't know. Give me one name, one guess. The mountain's called Atlas. What did they call the people? <laughs> okay, so we're going Atlantis. towards Atlantis. They called them Atlantis. They, they were the people of Atlantis. They were Atlantis. And we can go back to the ancient Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians said that one of the Phoenicians went to this mountain that they call Mount Atlas, and they say they say where it is, and he invented astronomy. He discovered, discovered astronomy. Herodotus calls these people Atlantes as well, and he called it the mountain was Atlas that was revered as a god. And so people, Herodotus, uh, book two, book two. So the in the ancient world, they, they recognized these mountains as well. And they recognized these mountains as places where astronomy had come from through Paradoia. But they told their own story. And their story, Perseus, with the head of the Gorgon Medusa, climbs Atlas, that is now Jebel Tobacal, and he turns everything to stone. He created the Paradoia images through that mythology. That's for, for Perseus. Hercules then comes after that. So when Perse, Hercules gets there, he sees all the Herodor animals and he sees the Titan Atlas in the stone itself. So the, the, the Greeks and the Phoenicians before them were retelling these, these prehistoric stories in their own way, their own worldviews. And we find, the, we find two other mountains like this. Um, one of them is... One of them is Mohassan. Mohassan is the tallest mountain on the Iberian Peninsula. It's sort of, um, if you're looking, it'd be the southwestern side of the southwestern side of the Iberian Peninsula, tall mountain. And we, we again, we find lots of constellations. Or actually, we find lots of paradoia that they found constellations in. That's really important. And so they they were going for one. When you place say they find no- paradoia in that mountain, you're talking about there's cave art around there. Well, no, in the actual mountain itself, they saw Paradoia. They saw this looks like the, the head of a horse. This looks like the back of a bear. This looks like the, um, you know, the head of a bear. And so they, they found the par. So there's no mountain, just like there's no bears in the sky and there's no people in the sky. There's no bear in the mountain. But they saw lines in the in the face of the mountains that looked like these. And from them, they then looked to the night sky. So they didn't check, they just didn't choose any mountain. They choose mountains that had paradoia that they then could re- see those characters that they cre- created them in the night sky from the a- actual mountains. So a lot of people will say that these people who actually do astronomy, who can see the asterisms of the constellations, they say, you know, these don't really make sense. You know, Orion makes sense or some major makes sense, right? 
The rest of it don't make any sense. The reason is because they didn't start as constellations in the night sky. They start as paradoia on terra firma. They, they knew the animals. They, they saw the paradoia of the animals in the rock faces in certain direction. And then they looked at the night sky and said, this is where this, this one is, and that's where that is. That's where astronomy comes from. Astronomy doesn't come from people first look at the night sky and say, that looks like a bear and that looks like a horse. It comes from terra firma finding paradoia in the world around them. That is such an awesome theory. <laughs> like, well, I can prove, and so I can actually. So it's easy to prove. Well, let me add a little flavor to it before you you yeah. go there. Just you know, there's uh, many passages in the Bible. For example, our rock is not as their rock. <laughs> you know, like they're talking about God. You know, you Potter. That's the that's Potter is also a word where you would. Petra, rock, you know, the father and the rock, the pattern. Pattern comes from that word as well. The Phoenicians you talked about, their capital city, Sir, which is spelled T-Y-R-E, but that's a word meaning both rock and Lord. And so <laughs> there's uh, there's linguistic connections to what you're saying that actually make a lot of sense. Why? I've always wondered, why is this symbolism of the rock and the father or the all-father tied together you know because Absolutely. if it's all astrotheology well there's not rocks up there so this is a pretty brilliant take and so going back to the 15th minute of our conversation i talked about what makes us different from the chimps it's pareidolia we can see something they can't see or we can we can project from a mind something that they can't see and then we can retell that story around around common pareidolia in common mountains and that's how, that's how the constellations came to be. That's most of the constellations, the ones at least that came from the Paleolithic record that went through the ancient Egyptians, went through Eudoxus, and landed um, to, on Ptolemy's desk for the, us to be later inherited in our civilized modern world, where we're still looking at Paradoia in the night sky and finding meaning in it. So how far have we come in the last 40,000 years? <laughs> well you know uh in a sense we haven't gone anywhere <laughs> we haven't gone anywhere no we haven't absolutely so here's where something interesting happened in the last month the news came out homo naledi three hundred thousand years ago buried the dead and made art in south africa that was the headlines covered all over the place mainstream media was all ticked off about it because they they released they went to the press with their so-called pre-peer-reviewed papers meaning that weren't peer-reviewed but if they're peer-reviewed they would have come up with the same story okay so I, I looked at the images and i studied them really carefully because that team who did this didn't study the images they had because they didn't have time to study them because they need to jump for the pre-peer-reviewed pre, pre people because they have, they have some, one of them has a book coming out. He has a next Netflix special this month. So they had no time for any of that stuff. Okay, So I actually studied the images. And um, they are exactly well, – actually, one of the images, I say, is exactly the same as one of the Iberian Spanish images. I'm not saying near to it. It is exactly. It's the same animals in the same order and the same structure of engraved lines. So that's so it wasn't 300,000 years ago. It was about 36,000 years ago. OK, that's what's important. OK, so we were homo sapiens or Ignatian people in Europe were connected to South Africa 36,000 years ago. That's the story. The story is not that homo and me art, which they have absolutely no evidence of, but it is the exact same images, the exact same image, the same animals in the same order in the same engraved lines. 
And I'm not saying that, you know, when I say exact, I'm saying they all are in the exact same order in the same lines. I'm not saying that, you know, maybe one is a little misplaced here, one's misplaced there. No way. They, the artists were from the same culture. They're different artists. I can tell you that because I could see how, how they made it. Because you, you're an artist. You can tell if someone's right-handed, left-handed, or ambidextrous, right? Just by how they do things. And uh, so I can tell that they're – I can tell you that they're different artists. But I can tell that they're from the same culture because they have exact same um, same characters. Now, these characters are all constellations or, or asterism, I guess. And so part of the reason that they're the same in the same order is because it's the same night sky. But the other part of it is that it, they originate from the same mountains of Paradoia because the constellations don't originate in the night sky. They, they, they originate as Paradoia. And the Paradoia comes from Mohassan, which is that tall mountain in the southern Iberian Peninsula. So 36,000 years ago, we – we were connected. I mean, there's, there's a long way from South Africa to the Iberian Peninsula. Now, about eight, 10,000 years ago, I'm sorry, eight, eight, I'm sorry, eight to, eight to 10 years ago, cave art had been date, reliably dated in Indonesia. And it was about 41 to 42,000 years ago. And people were asking the question, well, was there some sort of mother culture in Africa that spread out roughly 40,000 years ago? Some people went to Europe. Some people went to Indonesia and people said they said well it's just too far the distance between the two but what we have right now is we have an image in South Africa that is the exact identical image to one in the Iberian Peninsula and so if we could travel between Spain to South Africa 36,000 years ago we sure as hell how could travel to Indonesia okay and it didn't require boats to do it that's the key thing you didn't need any boats because all land voyages and actually and if you did swim, you swim across the Strait of Gibraltar between West North Africa, Morocco and Spain, which is about three to four hours swim. If you know if, if you're a pretty good swimmer, people people have races to go back and forth three or four times. You know, so it's not a this is not a stretch of imagination. If you catch the currents, right, current. The, so the currents go in, the currents go out the, into the Atlantic Ocean. You, if you catch the currents right, you can sort of like catch the swing and back into land. It makes it a lot easier. So 34, 34, 36,000 years ago, we're connected, which is very – so I'm not, I'm not on Team Atlantis of this mystery civilization 12,000 years ago traveling the world and spread the good news. But what this tells us is that the, we, 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 we can identify the story Atlantis going back to 34, 36,000 years ago in West North Africa. And we can see – because that's what the, 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 the ancient Greeks called the place. That's what the Phoenicians called the place. And we can see the cave art – that of these constellations. So now what we can see is that it's connected across the entirety of the the eastern coast, the eastern coast, uh, actually the western coast of Africa. They travel all the way. That's a long freaking way. And if you have that, so we're not talking about out of Africa theory, which I'm in on, but it was much earlier time. What we're talking about is trade and communication of prehistoric people who were Highly intelligent. You know, they didn't have iPads and they didn't have wear eyeglasses and they certainly didn't have podcasts. But these were highly intelligent people who had mastered astronomy, they had mastered na navigation, and they had mastered the, the, the art of retaining that information through mythology. Yeah, so if they started with the rock faces and then that got applied to the sky, you'd think that maybe the reason to translate it up to the above and you do that encoding via the stories they already had 
that it would be for navigation. It would make Navigate it easier if you already had a system and a mythology and you just could apply it to the sky above, then it'd make it easier as a mnemonic device to remember what part of the sky you're looking at for navigatory purposes. Makes sense. We're uh, we're getting close to the end of the first hour. I want to give you some time to uh, promote your website and your book and anything you want people to know about before we hop over to the second part. So absolutely, people. Um, nobody needs to go buy my book before Ryan. But people can do. They go to my webpage, go to my YouTube channel, the beforeRyan.com, and you can watch the videos. Lots of conference presentations, lots of images, and just you know enjoy the. Enjoy the journey, but you don't need to go read a whole book. If you are a reader, if that's what you like to do and you like to check all the references and the footnotes and all that sort of stuff, go to Amazon.Amazon, download the Kindle, and um, you know, enjoy yourself if that's who you are. But most people, if you're on I'll this give your book right some now, credit, man. The, uh, the way that you weave a historical fiction <laughs> narrative around the analysis of the ancient rock art is pretty yeah. cool. It's a lot – you know, it's not the dry – exploration that many academic books on that subject would feel like. Well, I wrote it. I didn't write it for the present. I wrote it for the future. I wrote it for some distant time in the past when I'm no no longer on podcasts and there's um, YouTube has gone another way. So I wrote the book for the future. And so I'm continually updating the book because we're, we're moving up. We're obviously most people already moved away from hardcover books and people. And if you're under 30, you're, you already have a Kindle or some other download of device and so i wrote it for the future um and but now people can you know it was it was a great project love to do it and i'm still updating but you don't you don't get the the voice you don't get the dialogue you don't get the nuances you don't get the 30 the 30 minute you know summary of the whole work by a podcast host who blows the whole blows us for the next hour um, but absolutely, people, if you read it before Ryan, get it on Kindle. If not, my webpage for Ryan.com, there's a lot of material that people from different perspectives can appreciate, enjoy, and share the love, subscribe, tell your friends. Awesome, man. Thank you for coming on and uh, looking forward to going further in part two. There's plenty on the list of notes, so we're going to have a good one. friends i hope you enjoyed the exploration we did today with bernie taylor thank you for tuning in i am pretty intrigued by this stuff i will admit i also have a lot of skepticism which i didn't bring to the conversation per se that skepticism would be around the dating of anything really when it comes to carbon dating however probably not all of the 
cave paintings in the world could be faked. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that cave paintings of rock art would be an early expression of human creativity. So the question becomes, what are the philosophies of primal humanity that have transcended time and made their way to us in the form of the mythoses that we still have awareness of. So I was very interested in Bernie's take, and I think he has some cool theories and particularly around the origins of language, which we talked about the origins of written language, which we talked about in the second hour. So if you want to tune in to the second part of this conversation, all you got to do is sign up on my Patreon or my Rockfin. Patreon is going to be $5 a month. You get access to every extended episode I've ever done. And on Rockfin, it's $15 a month, but you also get the entire catalog of ex- uh, premium content on the network. Way better than your Netflix subscription, let me tell you. And so in the second hour on this episode, we started out talking about how academia had received Bernie's work and his theories, and he gave some of his strategies to help himself out in that world that can be so quick to judge and so slow to change. (laughs) And I thought that was pretty cool. It sounds like he's doing well with that. Then we discussed biological time and the way time is encoded in cave art, which I thought was pretty cool. Biological time is, I guess, a a work that he uh, wrote before he did before Orion. And this has to do with ways that our biology in organisms on earth has timing encoded in the biology that the, the time of year can be discerned by what's going on with certain animals. And that's probably one of the early ways that man was able to actually conceive of cycles of time, aside from, of course, the luminaries and their cycles. Then we talked about the origin of representing calendars with animals. And, you know, that ties right into the idea of biological time. And then we discussed the Atlas Mountains as a potential birthplace of astronomy in North Africa. Then we talked about why caves were the first initiation spaces. That was pretty cool, too. Then the mythos of the origins of the Big Bang and multiverse theories, that these are not scientific, stuffy, materialist theories. These come straight out of mythology and have just been sort of scrubbed of all the trappings of mythology. But when you comprehend that, In any philosophy, there's a ground of belief required to build your theory on top of. Then it starts to make sense that science is just as much of a mythology and a religion as religion and mythology are science. (laughs) We talked about Bernie's hypothesis is around the origin of written languages and alphabets as that pertains to cave art. And then we got into a cool talk about the Tifinog language of North Africa, which I hadn't seen before, but very Phoenician very much Phoenician. So I hope you guys enjoyed this talk and we'll go on and check out the second part. Support me and my baby on the way, which is very appreciated. Oh, you can also get in touch with me for a tuning chance at interversepodcast.com. Had some incredible results with tunings lately. In fact, I think I'm going to open my email and just describe some of the results that have come through from tunings recently. Here we go. So a recent guest says, or a recent tuning client says, 
Where do I start? To say that my tuning fork session with Chance was an enlightening experience would be an understatement. Chance is a truly gifted being who was able to pinpoint specific areas of my physical body that needed cleansing based on his insight into my energy body. From start to finish, the session was both enjoyable and insightful. Chance has a great bedside manner and was willing to talk with me about what was going on and what I was experiencing as the session progressed, which I really appreciated. For someone to be able to correct imbalances in your field is amazing in itself, but to be able to speak to the reason why the imbalances are there and also to be able to do this in a kind and detailed way is just incredible. His willingness to explain everything was very much appreciated as bringing conscious awareness to a blockage is extremely beneficial, just as tuning itself is. Chance used tuning forks to correct several imbalances in my energy field, some of which I was not conscious of, but that made so much sense when he brought them to my awareness. His ability to tell me details about my own life was uncanny. Chance Chance offers a very unique perspective and brings something new, exciting, and groundbreaking to our spiritual community. This session was more than worth the money paid for it, and I would highly recommend booking a session with Chance if you want to, quote, get your life together, unquote. Heal from past life traumas or heal from past traumas, gain more insight into yourself, feel better physically and or grow spiritually. The amount of insight I gained and the time I spent working with them was honestly a gift. We are lucky to have Chance in this community. A sincere thank you for all that you do. I appreciate that review. That's quite something. Uh, very detailed and very positive. I appreciate that a lot. And another recent client said to me, I thought I'd give you an update. Digestion is working much better. I was also contacted by someone who owes me money to say they're ready to pay me back. <laughs> so there were more things about that um, client session. And I think other results will be forthcoming for her, but very cool to hear that there's immediate improvements and seeing how digestion working better coincides with getting some money coming in that was blocked from coming in, in a way that goes hand in hand because the sacral chakra, which is where our stomach and our digestion largely resides, is also has a lot to do with our ability to generate income and receive compensation that we're worth. So... Very cool that we were able to assist both of them in that big of a way. I hope you guys do check out a tuning session with me if there are specific issues you want to work on or you just want to get yourself into the most coherent shape energetically, mentally, spiritually, physically that you can. Uh, Interversepodcast.com slash sound dash healing for more information on how to book a session or to get some videos that will teach you a little bit more about the process so you know more about what you're getting into. And with that, my friends, I'm going to wrap up this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Can't wait to see you guys on the next one. Have a great day out there, wherever you are. Much love and bye-bye.